experience with God, trying to know the Lord, or just saying, man, I've been hearing a lot about these these Christians in our community. Let me go check out what's going on there. And Paul knows that there are two very specific things that the Corinthians were instilling in their worship of God that needed to be adjusted, that needed to be corrected. So this morning, I want us to understand that while we're going to get into this text, Paul is addressing two very particular aspects of worship. That, to be honest with you, one of them isn't necessarily very immediately, literally practical for us today. The principles behind the word of God are what we need to draw out of the text and allow to govern us as we seek to answer the question, God, how do I properly worship you? How how do I best give glory to you and praise to you in the year 2020? So that's what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And really the, the thing that I want us to understand about this overview in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is Paul's primary concern. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I just want to say it. Maybe you can jot it down. Paul's primary concern in this section is that the church at Corinth avoid doing things that might bring shame. Specifically things that might bring shame to each other as the body of Christ, but ultimately that would bring shame to God in their practices. So we're going to get into it this morning. You've got to bear with me. We're going to get really, really into this text, and I'm going to talk a lot about cultural context and understanding because it's going to really inform our worship. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2, says this. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the tradition just as I pass them on to you. But... I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. All the ladies in the house just scorned that verse. What are you talking about? What did the Bible just say? We're going to talk about that this morning. And ladies, I just want you to, to soften your hearts and be prepared because this text is going to be life-giving to you, all right? You've got to trust me on that. Trust me for, to walk you through this properly. So the first thing that we see here is Paul now says that there's a tradition that's been practiced that is good, that I'm grateful that you have continued to uphold that was passed on to you. And he doesn't necessarily say what that tradition is yet. First, he talks about more of a theological truth. This idea of, okay, let me help you understand your position in the cosmos, in the created order. And so here's the first point that I want you to know about this. The head should not be understood as all-powerful, but positional. All right, so here's just something I got to say right now. For those of you who do know this text, there have, you know, there have probably been some pastors, some teachers, some Sunday school teachers that have taken this scripture and have used it to create an authoritarian structure that men ought to be in submission to women. I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm going to show you how that is not what Paul is doing here. And that's an egregious misrepresentation of the Bible when you try to make that. So husbands, let me tell you, if you try to take this verse and say, honey, the reason that you are supposed to cook for me at night is because the Bible said that I'm your head and you, have a, you are in deep trouble, sir, both with your wife and before the Lord. So, so when I say the head should be understood as positional, not all-powerful, we need to understand the original Greek meaning of the word head. You see, in the original Greek meaning of the word head, it never did. It was something that could not even be considered to be thought of as authoritarian. Specifically, when we think the head of the state, the head of the company, the, the, the head of the school system, we automatically get this idea of a figure that has control and that leads everybody by dictating certain things, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But in the Greek language, there is no definition of that sort that ought to be tagged on to the word head. Specifically, as far as we're able to understand from ancient studies, the word for head here in the Greek, in the Greek language derives the meaning of source. And I want you to think about a river, a river that's constantly flowing, that you need to trace its flow back to its source that provides it the means to continue to move. 
So biblically, we understand that this would carry with it the connotation of life. Now you got to think about that for this second. Because we're going to, I'm, I'm going to unpack it a little bit more once we get to the verse, but think about origin. Think about the beginning of life within the created order of Scripture. Think about the book of Genesis. I want your minds to go there. I'm not going to unpack it yet, but start thinking about Genesis. How was Adam created? How was Eve created? This is all about understanding our position in the flow of things. Okay. All right, so let's keep moving. Keep moving. Verse 4. Every man... All right, now Paul addresses the specificity of the conduct of their worship. Here is what he says. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. You got to underline that. That holds a lot of cultural context that we're going to unpack right there. A shaved head. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So it sounds like Paul's picking on the ladies here, but he addresses men too. So let's talk about first. Paul gives the first directive. Men ought to have their heads uncovered. Okay. So what was commonly practiced in pagan culture of the ancient Near Eastern world is that if you were somebody who was socially elite, you had money, you had influence, you, 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 know, you, you had political friends, uh, you were given the privilege to be able to participate in religious, pagan, sacrificial worship. And you were elevated to a high lofty position in that worship. You weren't kind of just a congregant. You were a participant, kind of like a minister like myself. And how they specifically designated you as that individual that had that lofty right and that privilege. You wore a head covering as a male. It was your sign. Look at me. I got this place because of X, Y, Z. I got the money in my pocket. I know the people. I got the friends. Know your place, people. That, that's kind of what was happening in the pagan culture at the time when you went to pagan worship. Now, Paul is addressing the Corinthians and saying, you have allowed a pagan cultural practice into your midst, and the heart of that practice has to do with bringing glory to the individual. They wear the head coverings because they want to say, look at me. Know your place and know my place. That, that's what, and Paul's saying, when you walk into the body of Christ with that attitude of arrogance, you are bringing all of the focus unto yourself rather than God. First problem, Paul addresses it. Now on the flip side, the idea of head coverings for women in this culture carried with it, there's honestly so many implications, and we're going to try to unpack a few of them. But right here specifically, it said, you know where it said, I told you to underline in verse 5, it is the same. If a woman does not have her head covered, it is the same as having her head shaved. So first and foremost, what was culturally practiced in the ancient Near Eastern world, whether it was pagan or within a Jewish context, was that if a woman was caught in adultery, if she cheated on her husband, she needed to, the, it was common practice that her head was shaved as a sign of disgrace. As a sign has, I have compromised the integrity of the beautiful union between myself and my husband, my man. And so it was something that, I mean, thank God we don't do stuff like that today when we're caught in sin. Uh, but they, they, the ancient Eastern world was a very visual and was a very open and was a very disciplinary culture and people. And so they said, no, if you were caught in that, you're going to get your head shaved because 
That's your shame. That's your penance. That's your price. And so Paul is saying that you are walking around with your heads uncovered and it is the same as walking around with your heads shaved. Why would he say that? Why would he make the correlation between, all right, maybe I didn't cheat on my husband, but I just don't want to wear my head covering. Why is it the same if I don't wear my head covering as though I had cheated on my husband, as though my head needed to be shaved? Well, again, something that was very predominant in the culture rising, specifically amongst women in the Roman culture, was kind of this, and, and I say this very carefully, but understand this extreme feminism that was rising up, that was having this desire to say, I don't need to abide by any kind of cultural norms that have been practiced by my religious, by my people, by, by my families, and I am going to stand against the grain, and I am going to relinquish the need to wear a head covering in public. It really was a political statement, and more so, it was a sign of equality. It was a sign of, I can be just like the men. I don't need to wear this head covering because I'm equal in the eyes of all. Which, let me tell you right now, is true. So ladies, understand, you are equal. You are not inferior. Men understand that about women. We are all created equal in God's sight. But Paul is now, again, remember the context. It's all about worship. And it's all about worship of whom? God. And so the attention ought to be placed in the gathering on God. And this is why I think this is a message that we need to hear today. Because while I believe the church does need to take stands against certain cultural norms that are oppressive to individuals, there are certain aspects of the culture that we are not trying to be victors and champions of because they're doing nothing but trying to perpetuate ourselves at a place of supremacy when God does deserves that place in our lives. God's like, what are you coming together just trying to lift yourselves up? It's about lifting me up. And so Paul is saying, listen, and he's going to get into it. He's going to say, uh, you need to understand your equality. We're going to read that verse. So, so hold on for that. But he's saying, recognize that when you come into the midst of the believers, men, and you wear a, a head covering, you're making it all about yourself based on the culture, pagan culture at large. Ladies, likewise, when you come in and you deny what's been traditionally practiced and you take off your head coverings and say, oh, look at me, I'm no better, I'm no worse than you i'm at the same level as you you're making it all about yourself there's a time and a place for that discussion that ought to be had but when you come together it's not that so does that mean that ladies here ought to be wearing head coverings nope Esther, I love you so much and thank you for wearing your head covering. You have every right to do that in this house because of a personal conviction that it brings glory to whom god and i know that's your heart but that doesn't mean that that's the norm for the rest of the ladies in this place. Because again, the heart behind it. Let me give you a second point based on what we just read. It's this. Worldly participation will inevitably lead to humiliation. When we allow ourselves to become so, so steeped in the ways of this world to the point that it becomes provocative. It becomes, it looks sweet. It looks enjoyable. And you start saying, I want to have a part of that. We go so far as to compromise the integrity of God's word and how the family of Christ ought to be considered and maintained and protected and understood that we're willing to allow the culture so much into the church 
that here's what's happening. Bring it back to understanding the head, the theology of who's the head. He's saying you're, you're bringing disgrace because here's another cultural understanding of a head covering that I want to discuss now. The head covering also carried with it in the ancient Near Eastern world a sign of respectability, of purity, and really a sign of, I'm not on the market, guys. I ain't available. I ain't single and ready to mingle. You know, I'm spoken for. Now, it didn't necessarily mean that that was only reserved for a husband and a wife. It could have also been the fact of, you know, the cultural norms of the father giving away the daughters. Like, no, I, my father hasn't blessed me in that. And again, we can get upset about all that, but we need to focus, not today, focus on the context of this day and age. It was widely accepted amongst all cultures. It was a norm. And so when women in public wore that head covering, it was a sign, a, an outward sign of saying, listen, I, I ain't trying to flirt with you, so stay away from me. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that I hope if you're single in the church, this is the best place for you to find your future spouse, all right? Because the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked. And that's what I truly hope would happen for all of us. But the purpose of gathering as a church is not to hook up with people. It's not to find your lifelong mate. It's not to test the waters and see what works for you. We come to worship God. As a wonderful, beautiful byproduct, God, in his faithfulness, might deem worthy to hook us up with somebody. You know, so understand where I stand on that. But Paul is saying, when you gather together, another aspect of ladies, when you don't wear that head covering, whether you're married or not, you are sending signals to others in the church gathering that, hey, I am available. Hey, I'd like to talk a little bit. Now, I ain't saying that that's what we're doing here. I am just pointing out cultural norms based on the Bible that Paul is addressing that I think all of us need to understand. And I believe that's an application for men as well. Men and women, why do we come together in this gathering? To worship God. That's it. So I ain't talking bad about the way that you dress, but I would just encourage you, if you ever find yourself saying, why am I dressing this way when I go to church? Think about it. All right, can we just say that and let's move on? And I got no concerns here right now, but I've been to church, many a church, and I've seen some stuff like, I can't look over there. I got to look over here right now. Hey, you know, we're just being real here. We're being real. All right. So really what we see here is a denial of ancient tradition for the sake of progressivism. I think there's a lot to be said here about this too. You see, I am a firm believer in being progressive and not being shackled by norms of the past that do nothing to bring glory to God. But here's where the caveat comes in. Here is the saving grace. We can put progressivism and tradition under a microscope and we can always vet it through the reality is this bringing glory to God. Because if it is, then tradition ought to be upheld. If it isn't, it ought to be abolished. If tradition is bringing, uh, if progressivism is bringing glory to God, bring it to the table. Let's do it. If it's not, let's have nothing to do with it. 
And Paul is saying you are sending now specifically to the outsiders among you. Men, when you worship this way, you're again, you're scandalizing them like we talked about last week. You're showing the weak-minded believer who, again, they're not fully developed in their ability to assess what is right and wrong in regards to the relationship with the Lord. When you act in these ways in your arrogant, lofty understanding of the gospel, yes, you do know a lot more, but it's arrogance that's leading you rather than love that's leading you. When you act this way, you scandalize their minds. You destroy their minds. You destroy their ability to understand what is the true way to God. You see that again right here in this text. He hasn't really gotten off of this realm of everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We go back to chapter 8, verse 13. It's not on the screen. I'm just quoting it for you. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again. I mean, that's a statement. That, that's a statement, man. I mean, coming from a meat eater. My wife always insinuates the idea of becoming a vegan. I'm like, no. I'm not giving up chicken. I'm not giving up a steak. You know, God gave a saying, but I'm not speaking against it. I'm not saying if you're vegan, it's bad. I'm just saying, that's not me. So I read a verse like this. I'm like, uh -huh. What Paul, he's making a big statement right there for some guys like me too. He's saying, no matter how much you love it, appreciate it, enjoy it, even if it's good and if it's right, I will be willing to give it up completely so that my brother or sister in the Lord or even the unbeliever in our midst will not be scandalized in their understanding of who Jesus is because I don't want to warp them in their thinking, which I believe so many Christians have done throughout the years. So many Christians have warped what it means to be a follower of Jesus so that those outside look at us as hypocritical, as hateful. Whew. Let's not humiliate God. I can just say it that way. Let's be cognizant of the fact that everything that we do carries implications within the church body. And we ought not to bring humiliation to God. Verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. All right, there he goes again, Paul. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought... you got to catch this. You better underline this in your Bible or in your notes, whatever you got to do. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority. That's big. Because based on the translation of your scripture, it might say a different thing from there. And this is the proper. The NIV really does the right job in translating this. A woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Because of the angels, I ain't talking about that today. Join us on Tuesday and I will discuss what that potentially means. We're not getting into that today. There's so many possibilities. So let me make the point and then we're going to discuss it. Here it is. Here's our first answer to our big question. What's the proper way to worship in the church? The focus of worship is to bring glory to God and no one else. All right? I've already said that, but now I'm making it official for you to write down. The focus of worship is to bring glory to God and no one else. First point, Paul said man shouldn't cover his head. Why? Because Christ is his head. And if you cover the head, you are bringing dishonor. You're hiding. You're steering away individuals' attention to what you are. So Paul here, while he's speaking literally within their practice, he's using this practice metaphorically. He's saying, again, understand within the context of creation, your head metaphorically is a representation of your true head spiritually, which is God. And so when you cover that head, what we're talking about here 
is you are not bringing glory to God. You're bringing shame to God. You're saying, God, I'm ashamed of you. I want to hide you. But again, it was through the practice of, I'm bringing glory to myself. And then for the woman, he said, when you leave your, oh, this is so good. You're, you're going to love this. Because you're thinking, well, shouldn't it be the same thing? Shouldn't we, in, the, in this context, leave our head uncovered so that we bring glory to God? Because ultimately, God is our head, all of us, men and women. Paul says, no, you've got to understand. Go back to Genesis. And this is where I'm talking about. In the book of Genesis, when we go back to the creation of man, it says that God formed man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed the life into him. But this is so good. He saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So he didn't give man a pet. He didn't give man just, just something that would, you know, give him some more enjoyment with his time. He gave man what he needed to complete him. The equal counterpart. Creation wasn't finished yet. And God put man to sleep and took his rib out and formed the first woman, Eve. And man looks at woman and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Not a, not a term of dominance, but a term of endearment. You and I are one and the same. You and I were created by God, and God created you in such a way to understand that we are so interdependent upon each other. We need to work together. We need to work in tandem. This is why Paul quotes in regards to marriage, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Perfect unity in such a way that is the closest representation to the unity that we see in the Trinity. I believe that wholeheartedly. Many more, and I'm not saying that it is uh, means to say that, oh, you're not going to really understand what true unity is unless you get married. Not at all. Not at all. But I do believe that there is a reality that we see in the holiness of marriage this unity that gets us closest to understanding the triune God. The three gods, well, not three gods, excuse me. The three distinct persons that comprise one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they're not three separate. They're one. It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around. But when we think about marriage, even though it's only two, it's the two becoming one. One. So, oh, this is good. When Paul says, therefore, when you understand that man is your glory, now the next thing that I want us to understand is the word glory. Because I think when we think of glory, we, we give so many different meanings to it. And while it can be used in different contexts within Scripture, how we need to understand it here and ultimately in its predominant sense is think of the radiance. I want you to think about the sun right now. And I want you to think about this, this just huge gaseous ball of light that upon which there, there's no shadow on it as far as we know because it just radiates in a full 360 sense light from it. Oh man, this is good. Humanity as God's creation ought to radiate God, ought to be a physical manifestation. It is a privilege to be able to say, wow, wow. I bring glory to God through my very being. Okay, all right, all right. Within the created order, now, technically, Paul's getting very technical, man came from woman. And so there is a glory that is ascribed to man because woman came from man. But if that's the case, and we say that worship ought always bring glory to God, that's why woman ought to cover her head because 
God is saying when you come together, it's not about bringing glory to your man or anybody else in the presence of this place. It's about bringing glory to God. Did you catch that? So ladies, that's why in this scripture, Paul is saying you ought to exercise authority over your own head. You have the right to do it and understand the implications of doing it. Because if you don't, you're in this context, you're trying to be extremely progressive and say, hey, I'm equal. When the reality is you're making it more about the individual that you're trying to prove your equality with. When is when you wear a head covering, you're saying it's not about him. It's about God. But what does that really mean for us today? I mean, I'm not going to give you so many practical examples because this is why I focus on the principle of the text. This is not a message that you ought to be covering your heads. This is a message, every conduct of your life, especially when we come together and gather, and especially when you're living your life the other six days of the week, ought to be bringing glory to Lord. You ought to be radiating God and no one else. It's not about a political movement. It's not about a worldly agenda. It's about being willing to say what John the Baptist said. He must increase. I must decrease. We don't like that in American culture. We, we just don't like that. I'm just going to make this statement. If the culture of the world becomes synonymous with the culture of the church, our worship is no longer bringing glory to God. If those two words are used so interchangeably, culture of the world and culture of God, then we've got a problem. Or culture of the church and culture of the world, we've got a problem. Because I believe some churches try to teeter so close to the edge of, man, we gotta be, we gotta be so uh, uh, acceptable in the eyes of the world. We've got to show them that we're extremely progressive. And if that means we're not going to touch certain topics on a Sunday, if we're going to allow for certain things, you know, within our ministries, that we've got a problem. And, and you can keep drawing your implications there. Because, again, Jesus says to be in the world, but not of the world. And so what I truly believe, and many of you have heard me say this a few times for our midweek Bible study, when it comes to culture, we need to recognize the importance of it. Because I believe that culture is a language. And if you don't speak the language of the culture, they're not going to understand the dialect of the gospel you're speaking in. You've got to understand that hip-hop, rap, clothing, aesthetics, technology, all of that is a part of the culture in our world today. And if you don't get it, if you don't understand it, how are you going to be able to communicate the gospel? In my eyes, it is no different than going to a third world country that speaks a language you've never even heard of and screaming English language at them, saying, Jesus loves you, so why aren't you accepting him? You know, kind of something like that. It, it's, it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, we, we understand that to be logical. Culture is the same thing. But that being said, that being said, with, the, with that understanding of we need to be willing to speak the culture of the, uh, uh, speak the language of culture of this world, we cannot allow the culture. In other words, there are just some things about the body of Christ and the word of God that can never be compromised. And so how do we deduce, how do we understand what is the culture of the world and the culture of the church? Does it bring glory to God? Do the seats that we sit on in this church, do the clothes that I wear, do the music that I listen to, do the way that I talk, do the people that I, I, I hang out with, and then further, is my conduct with them? Let's be more specific. The pe because we ought to be hanging out, honestly. We ought to have relationships with people who are believers and unbelievers. 
All right, so we can have a holistic inward and outward approach to understanding the, our relationship with the Lord. But how is our conduct around them? Is it compromising? Or is it, or is it uplifting the gospel of Jesus? We've got to watch culture, all right? Verses 11 through 12, I'm just going to quickly read them for you. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. That right there is the culmination of like the argument. Paul, you see it, he's already thinking in his mind, there's going to be some dudes in the church that are going to take this text and they're going to try and use it as an act of dominance over women. And he says it right here. He goes, all right, now that we talked about understanding the position of our created order as it flowed like a river, you need to understand men in the church and women and everybody that just as man came from Adam, guess what? You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your mama. That's the bottom line. And so there is nothing but equality amongst the two genders. One is not greater than the other. They are equal and they complement each other with strengths that the other God has gifted them with. And that's why they must work in unity. Their diversity must work in unity. All right, so that right there is that. And then I love this last verse. Paul says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, literally the word contentious means to seek victory. If anybody wants to be contentious about what I've just talked about, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. He's like, you can go against the grain as much as you want, but this is true to the people of God and who we are because it's rooted in our faith and it's rooted in the word of God. So he's like, I'm not gonna even bother. You wanna argue, argue till you're blue in the face. This is just, this is how we do it, all right? I love that. So he finishes that. Now, Paul transitions the discussion to something completely different. So he was talking about head coverings in regard to worship. Now he talks about the Lord's Supper or communion as we would all really understand it to be. So let, let's transition there and let's read it, but let's not forget the question, what's the proper way to, the church should worship God? Here it is, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Don't miss that. If you go back, you go back to verse 2 of what Paul said in regards to head covers. He goes, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the tradition. So there, there was praise. So we understand that that first part, it probably wasn't too much of an issue in the church, but he was still addressing it. Now, in regards to how they conduct communion in the Lord's Supper, he goes, I have no praise for you. They're in trouble. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. I'm not surprised, knowing the character of some of you individuals. That's what Paul's saying. And we know that back in the beginning, in chapter 1, it's already addressed. It's been reported that there are divisions for so many of these reasons. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's another big thing that we'll probably talk about on Tuesday. Um, Verse 20, so then when you come together, here's the directive. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. I'm going to make a point, and then we're going to talk about it. Based on what we just read, the Corinthians allowed what was meant to be a celebration of their unification to become a means of separation. Yeah. 
So here's what's going on. Let's talk about this for a second. Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, or he, he's alluding to it right here, and he says when, when you partake of it, many of you are, are getting fat and full and drunk and gluttonous while others are starving. Now, when I first read that, I think about, Paul, when I eat communion, I don't think anybody's getting full off of that little tiny wafer and that little cup of juice. I mean, I think it makes me more hungry and thirsty when I eat it. And I'm like, but Lord, I'm remembering you. It's for your glory. Can't wait for, can't wait for church to be over so I can go get some lunch now. Uh, so we need to understand, once again, a cultural practice that was regularly instituted in this time. It's what some scholars ha have termed the agape feast. So in other words, there was the Lord's Supper, which was the honoring, the remembering of Jesus on the night he was betrayed that he practiced himself with his 12 disciples. He took the cup and he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after saying, this is my blood which is the new covenant. Whenever you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, so on and so forth. That's the Lord's Supper. And it's something that churches practice regularly. It's an ordinance of the church. And it was something that these churches practiced regularly in this day and age, but they would also have feasts together, specifically because as we can deduce, church, believe it or not, was on a Sunday night. Because for we, we think church as the day of Sabbath, and I'm not about to get into all that, and our Sunday is our Sabbath, but in the Jewish world, Sabbath started from Friday night into Saturday night, and then Sunday was the new day of the week. You're back to work. And so it's really interesting, and there's a message in that somewhere. They gathered together for church on the first day of the work week. Imagine if Monday was our day to come together. This place would probably be empty. That's another sermon for another day. It talks about dedication that these individuals had. So they came together on a Sunday night after a long day's work, and it almost seems common sense what they would do, what was practiced not just in the Jewish realm, but in, in the rest of the pagan world, the Gentile world, something called basket dinners, where as far as we know, they would bring what was enough for them and their family to eat at the gathering, kind of like a potluck, kind of, in a church, but it really had more to do with we're bringing food for ourselves. It wasn't an act of selfishness. It was just what was practiced. But here's the reality. Just like we keep seeing there are affluent, rich individuals in the church community and there are poor individuals, it's right here, we see it right now taking place in their gatherings on these potentially Sunday nights. The problem is the haves, the people who have much, devour their own ample amounts of food in the presence of fellow Christians or have-nots, destitute, poor, who just don't really got two pennies to rub together and they're coming in, you know, with a pack of Ritz crackers and they, they, they got their full-blown Chick-fil-A, in my mind. And they're just like scarfing it down in front of them while they're out there starving. And what was even more practice was, I don't have the specific Greek words for you, but it, it doesn't matter. It's kind of this idea that the affluent, the rich, the haves, they went into the dining room and they sat at the table. And then you have the have-nots who were said, no, you all stay out in the foyer and, and you stand and you eat out there. We'll, we'll, we'll take the Lord, we'll commemorate the Lord's Supper together and we'll all lift up, you know, the bread and the juice. But when it comes down to eating, you guys stay out there. There is so much cultural significance to that. So much cultural significance. Here's the first reason why I believe it's so significant for us to understand. Because you see a group of individuals who are not only trying to fulfill their desires, you can maybe draw the implication that they didn't want to share their food, which obviously Paul is saying you ought to. But I believe it's even deeper. Because it was so culturally practiced that there was a division between the haves and the have-nots within the church, even though, yeah, those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, I love them. God bless them. I don't want them in this room. I don't want them to be associated with me. What are my friends going to think? 
And so what Paul, what, what Paul is addressing is, you guys are sitting here getting fat and drunk while your own family is on the outskirts literally dying. We know historically that there were famines that regularly took place in Corinth and in the ancient Near Eastern world. And they probably literally have not enough food to keep their family alive in this moment. And you're sitting here getting fat, stuffing your faces while they're starving over there. And you're all, all of this is done in the, in the vein of, I don't want my name to get slandered amongst my friends. I don't want to lose the status that I've worked so hard to gain. We've got a problem here because once again, it's all about glorifying myself rather than giving glory to God. So the question that I want to ask you is this. Are we willing as a church to sacrifice our advantages for the sake of equality? I think all of us have got to do a lot of deep, deep, deep reflection and really honestly assess whether or not, have I been given privileges that others don't? And I believe that that has implications on race, on family, on job status. You know, I don't think it's just regulated to, you know, the, the, the whole narrative going on in our culture right now of white privilege and all that. I think it has so many more implications of you probably had a good family regardless of the color of your skin that worked to earn what you have that others don't even begin to have. You, you had a good opportunity. You got a great scholarship. We can just go down the list. It's time for us to stop and to assess whether or not do I have, which others don't have, regardless of why I have it, do I have it? And furthermore, am I willing to sacrifice it so that they can have? Am I willing to give it to those individuals? Because that is what we're called to do as the body of Christ. Not to stand in the dining room getting fat saying, for whatever reason, justifying why you ought to stay there. Because, well, I earned this. Well, because it was given to me. For whatever reason, we're saying, I don't want to lose this. And Jesus, here's what Paul says. You ready? He goes on to describe the actual meaning of the Lord's Supper in its integrity. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for who? You. Yeah. My body is broken for the community, not for me. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right now, Paul just made a clear distinction here between the selfishness of the Corinthians and the selflessness of Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line, church. You ready? Worship that excludes self-sacrifice doesn't have God as its recipient. If there is not a shred of a willingness to sacrifice what you have so that the have-nots could have a little bit something to tip the scales to be equal as we are equal in the eyes of the Lord, then we are not truly bringing glory to God because glory is radiance. Glory is the representation of the Son. It's the glory of God itself. We are the of Christ on this earth. And so for us to say, I glorify God. Yes, I do. Jesus, bring glory to your name. You need to stop and you need to look at your actions. Are you reciprocating the gospel? And the heart of the gospel is love. And love means sacrifice. Are you willing to go out of your way to compromise your comforts 
in order that others would be able to have and experience that which they've never had before. The book of Acts talks about when the Spirit of God fell and, and, and many came at the day of Pentecost to the fold of the Lord. It says that the church was just so, so united in such a way that there was complete commonality amongst them. Complete equality. Which was not happening here in Corinth. When that, when that first century church was really birthed in the book of Acts, they really embodied what it meant to carry on the work of the Lord. It said that there were members within the church selling off the excess of their property because they said, I don't need this. I'm not going to begin to be able to spend it all. And maybe some of them, they were like, well, I, that does help, but, but I can adjust my finances because there are other brothers and sisters in this house, in this family, who cannot even pay rent right now. They're homeless. They're hungry. They're desperate. And so you have those individuals selling off of their property and giving so that the scales would be tipped in equality. And the Corinthian church was taking such a holy ordinance that Jesus said you are to practice consistently upon my departure from this world so that you don't forget. And he says, you're practicing it all right, but you're humiliating me in the process because you're saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah, this is the body that was broken for me. Thank you, Jesus. This is the blood that was shed for me. Thank you, Jesus, for the, for, the fa for the fact that you did not discriminate when you died, but you died for all, and that I have new life in you. Thank you, God. You got to stay out in the foyer. We're having dinner over here. Maybe there'll be some leftovers. Maybe. I don't know. Worship that excludes self-sacrifice doesn't have God as its recipient. It's not on here. But in Luke chapter 8, I'm pretty sure it's chapter 8. I know it's in Luke. We read the story of a woman who had the issue of bleeding for many years. And I don't know why, but I just feel like that's such a pertinent biblical example of Jesus' life. Because obviously Jesus showed the epitome of the self-sacrifice on the cross in the highest way. But sometimes I like to look at it in a more practical way. Because not all of us are going to be nailed to a cross. And how can we be sacrificial to individuals that we meet every day? Well, Jesus had been going around in his ministry and he's getting really well known. And crowds of individuals are, are, are flocking to him when he comes to their town. Because they want to have an experience with him. And then the book of Luke and Mark and Matthew, they all share the story. But in Luke specifically, it says that there was a woman there who had a medical condition of bleeding for many years. And it says specifically that she spent all that she had, every dime that she had, and she went to every doctor that she could, probably the best of the best, and none of them could fix her problem. Now, you need to understand the cultural implications for an individual within specifically, probably not just, but specifically within the Jewish culture who had any kind of medical issue, you would be considered ceremonially unclean. And when you were ceremonially unclean, you could have no association with individuals. Literally, if you walked into your parents' house and sat down on a chair, they would have to ceremonially cleanse that chair, which would take at least a week. You couldn't touch anybody. You couldn't hug anybody. You couldn't be in a certain proximity to somebody. Think about when it says for years, I don't remember the specific years. It was either seven or 14 or somewhere in there. Think about those, that, that prolonged amount of relational isolation from everybody that you love and care about. And you used every means possible to exhaust your resources in order to fix this problem just so that you can go back to a normal life of having dinner with your family. Now, here's also what's important. If the individual compromised the Jewish cultural mosaic mandates in the law, which was, 
I don't tell people that I'm ceremonial and clean and I go and I interact with them. They could take it so far as to stone you to death. They could kill you. And I can imagine this woman, she'd probably practice that faithfully, but now she's got nothing left. She's got nothing left. And all of a sudden she hears about Jesus, this healer of the diseased, this individual who cleanses lepers, the epitome of the ceremonially unclean, and he healed them. He's coming to my town. I, I, gotta, I gotta find him. And she, and she happens upon this crowd that, that's, that's suffocating Jesus because they just want to get so close to him. And you gotta imagine the implications of her to get to Jesus. She thinks in her mind, I just, if I just touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. But the implication was, I got to touch him. I'm going to make this great rabbi, this famous man, unclean. Think about the retribution that's going to be enacted upon me. But then not only was that the problem, I got to go through these crowd of individuals that are, that are not even shoulder to shoulder able to create any space. I'm going to touch plenty of them on the way in, even if I sneak in and out. The implications of this woman's actions meant certain death. But she knew, I've got to get to Jesus. He's my only hope. And so she gets down, she gets to him, she sneaks her way, she touches the hem of his rope, and instantly, Scripture says, she knew that her body was healed. And in that moment, Jesus also knew, power went out for me. And he looks around, he goes, who touched me? And Peter goes, are you serious, Jesus? Are you serious? You see all these people around, we can't even walk without all these people crowding around us. Are, are you serious? He's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Power just went out for me. There was someone who was in need and they came to me looking for help. Who did it? Knowing the implications of her actions and the certain death that would come her way, she probably very scared and, and with much trembling stands up and says, Jesus, it was me. But let me just tell you why. Jesus and everybody in that crowd based on the Mosaic law, had every right to stone her on the spot. What did Jesus do? He loved her. He received her. He accepted her. And on the night of his betrayal, at the Last Supper, he looks at his disciples and he says, remember what I stand for. Remember why I came. Remember why I died. It's for everyone. It's for everyone so that even the lowest, even the ceremonially unclean would be able to be in communion with me. That's what Jesus did upon the cross and he expects us as we live the gospel, not just talk about what it means, but to live the gospel to be willing to sacrifice anything in order that we can have a quality as a body because ultimately that brings glory to God. Would you stand with me here this morning? I'm going to ask that the prayer team would make their way forward at this time and just uh, be prepared. We want you to know we're going to continue to practice social distancing, but we believe that it was necessary to to create opportunities for you as a body to be prayed for. We will not lay hands on you. We will keep our masks on, but we're willing to listen and to pray for all of the needs that are represented here today. But I know that the Lord has been working in this place as he does every week, and I know that many of you receive from the Lord that which you ought to fulfill and follow through upon. I don't know what it is, 
but you know what it is, and the Spirit of God is calling you right now. The Spirit of God is impressing upon your heart right now. The Spirit of God is redirecting your attention to be willing to assess whether or not your life in and of itself brings glory to God. Are you radiating God? Are you representing him the way that he should be representing, or are you misrepresenting him? Jesus, we come before you today willfully submissive to you, our head, from whom everything comes. Lord, I pray right now we would be willing to ask ourselves whether or not we have allowed too much of the world into our lives. And God, I pray that you would bring conviction upon our hearts. God, are we materialistic? God, is there, is there a spirit of racism in us? Is there an unjustified jealousy and hatred towards others? Lord, is there an unwillingness to forgive? Unwillingness to forgive individuals who we would consider our enemies? That you forgave on the cross as they mocked you? Lord, are we too caught up in believing that we know everything and we know the right way to worship you so much to the extent that we belittle others because of their, their way of worship? And are we making it about ourselves and the idea that we think we know better, which makes it about ourselves? Or God, do we look to your word? Do we repent before you and just say, Jesus, Lord, here I am, search me. Search my hearts. Search my mind transform me from the inside out. May I not be conformed to the pattern of this world anymore, Jesus. I pray that my body would be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you in this moment, God. So Lord, wherever we're at in this walk, for the individuals present here and for those online and those who maybe will watch this after the fact, right now, God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, reveal to us the truth of your word and how our lives are living in accordance with or against and correct us, I pray. In Jesus' name, would this be a house of worship unto you? Would this be a family of worship unto you, God? And nothing and no one else. So Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We give glory to you, God. And in Jesus' mighty name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come on, give God praise this morning. Thank you, Jesus.